Good morning. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pastor John, and I'm so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. I also want to thank those of you who are watching online. I have a question for you today I want you to think about. This is a church. We talk about Jesus here at church. So thinking about Jesus, if I were to ask you, what do you think Jesus was amazed at? What was Jesus amazed at? What made Jesus marvel? What made Jesus step back and go, wow, what amazed Jesus? Maybe we try to think 2,000 years ago, what, what could Jesus have seen that amazed him? Well, he lived in ancient Israel. Maybe he went to the temple they had, this glorious temple that was supposed to be an incredibly beautiful building that you could see the light reflect off it for miles around. Maybe he saw the temple and that made him amazed. That made him go, wow. Maybe it was that. Maybe Jesus was amazed at the, the government that was ruling at the time. The Roman Empire, all the way over from Italy, from the city of Rome, had come all the way over to Israel, conquered that area. They ruled everything with an iron fist. Maybe that impressed Jesus. Maybe that made him amazed. He also lived in a very beautiful part of the world. Maybe he looked at the Sea of Galilee, and that amazed him, or at the mountains around him, and that drew his wonder. But if we read the Gospels, if we read the books in the Bible that tell us about Jesus, there's actually only two times Jesus is said to be amazed. One of them is the one we're not talking about today. I put the reference, if you're using the notes, as the first one. I'm not going to turn to it, but it's in Matthew 8.10. And that's when a Roman officer, a centurion, a Roman military official, has a servant who's sick, and he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want you to, would you please heal my servant? You don't have to come, Jesus, because I know you're powerful. All you have to do is say the word, and he'll be healed. And Jesus is amazed at the faith of this Roman Gentile centurion. This person who should have nothing to do with Jesus has this great faith in him, and that amazes him. And the second time Jesus is said to be amazed is the passage we're going to read today, when his hometown, his family, his friends reject him. That amazes him. These are the things that amaze Jesus. When someone who shouldn't have faith in him does have great faith in him. And when the people who knew him, who should have believed in him, instead rejected him, that amazed Jesus. If you've been here, we've been looking at who Jesus is from this book. And if you were here last week, we saw great examples of faith. We saw this woman who believed if she touched Jesus, she would be healed. We saw this man, Jairus, who his daughter was sick, but he trusted Jesus even when his daughter died and Jesus brought her back to life. But our passage today is going to be a great contrast to those stories of faith and healing. But if our mission here is to discover who Jesus is, then we have to look at all the facts and evidence and look at the truth that many people rejected him. Many people didn't like who Jesus was or what he was doing, and many people still reject him today. Yes, he was very popular because of his healing, some of the things he said and did, but many people also despised him. They rejected him. And if we're going to follow Jesus today, we should expect the same treatment. We're going to see today in our passage that Jesus was despised in his hometown because it fulfilled prophecy, but also because they were so familiar with him, they couldn't see who he truly was. And we'll also learn that Jesus' followers will be rejected because they tell people to repent and turn from sin and have faith in Christ. 
but we should respond to that rejection by continuing to do the good God has called us to do and to share his good news. So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn in your Bible to the book of Mark, chapter 6. You can also use that blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. We'll also put the words up on the screen. We're going to be in Mark 6, verses 1 through 13. Mark, big 6, little 1 through 13. And once you are there, if you are able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. Mark 6, verse 1 through verse 13. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Chapter 6 begins this way. It says, he, talking about Jesus, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed him. Verse 6, And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Verse 7, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Lord, we we mourn to look at the words of this passage where people who should have known you and known who you were, instead turn away from you and reject you. Oh, but God, how often does that describe our own hearts? We ignore who you are and what you've said to choose our own way and our own interest. So God, I pray that you help us to see your son clearly, how he fulfills prophecy, and he is the one that we should trust. He is the one that we should know. So that God, if we're following you and we experience rejection because we're telling people to turn to you, May we find the endurance to continue, to continue doing your good work, continue sharing your good news, knowing that we're continuing in the same suffering that you experienced. Lord, as we look at this word today, help us to see clearly who your son is, and may we choose to follow him instead of rejecting him. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to look at two halves in this passage. The first half are those first six verses, which highlight how Jesus was despised, or you could say rejected. Jesus was despised and rejected by the people of this town. 
We're looking in the Gospel of Mark. This story, though, is also in Matthew 13, and it's very similar to a story in Luke chapter 4. Scholars aren't sure if it's the same event or if it was a different one. We just read the passage, so I'm not going to read every part of it, but I'll put it up on screen when I'm talking about it. Jesus arrives, he comes to his hometown, his home country, this little town called Nazareth. It was where he grew up. It's a small town, probably about 25 miles from the Sea of Galilee, where he did a lot of his work. Nowadays, it's a fair-sized city, but in Jesus' day, it was a really small town, probably 150 to 200 people, the kind of town where everyone knows everyone. And when he gets there, he begins teaching, sharing God's word. Perhaps he was asked to speak in the synagogue, their religious gathering place. And he proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom, that God's kingdom was coming through him. And we see in verse 2 that the people, when they hear this, they're astonished. They're amazed. They marvel at what he's saying. They're impressed by his great learning and wisdom, his mighty and remarkable works, his miracles. And this type of being impressed with what he's saying is how Jesus' friends and family often reacted to when he shared uh, the good news, when they saw what he was doing. In the Gospel of John, we read about some other uh, Jews, some other people that he knew, and they say that they marveled, and they said, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? I'm very curious, like, this is not somebody we remember going to school, getting the best education. How does he know these things? We know it's because he is God's son. He is God, and he has God's knowledge. But it seems that when Jesus was growing up, his deity was so hidden that his friends, his family, his neighbors didn't realize who he really was. It's almost hard to grasp, but the Son of God lived in this little town for 30 years, and most people had no clue who he was. And so when they hear him start to do the things of the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, they're amazed, they're astonished. They're like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. But that thought goes no further than that. Their amazement that this is happening, that this is what Jesus is saying and doing, it doesn't grow into faith or trust. Frankly, that's similar to many people. If you were to ask the average person on the street, what do you think of Jesus? They say, oh, he was a great teacher. He he said some pretty incredible things. And typically it stops right there. It doesn't go further to acknowledge who he really is, the Son of God. And for these people... They had an abrupt change right after that. They said, wow, this is incredible that he's saying these things. But then they quickly turned to criticism of this man they think they know so well. In verse 3, they start by saying, is not this the carpenter? Isn't he the guy who worked at that carpentry shop down the road? Although the word carpenter, it's more this idea of a handyman or a construction worker. Jesus was a laborer, someone who worked hard with his hands, and they're shocked that this person is teaching these advanced religious things at their synagogue. Maybe they thought someone like him shouldn't be in spiritual leadership, but it's a wonderful truth that the God who made the universe, when he came in the person of Christ as a human being, he was willing to work with his human hands. He humbled himself to take the role of a simple laborer, so that we, his people, could be accepted by God through him. They also say, not only is he the carpenter, isn't he the son of Mary? Which, that's a very odd thing for them to say. Remember, this is 2,000 years ago. Culture was different then. Typically, if you were saying somebody was the son of someone, you said the name of their father. 
we would expect them to say, isn't this the son of Joseph? So why did they say the son of Mary? Well, we don't know for sure. There could be two things. One is maybe Joseph is dead. We have some implication that Joseph died sometime before Jesus started his adult ministry. But they could also be doing a little dig at who Jesus is here. Because this is a small town. They probably knew that Joseph wasn't Jesus' father. Maybe they're suggesting something of an illegitimate background for Jesus. Isn't he the son of Mary? We're not going to call him the son of Joseph. We, we know something fishy was going on back then. They don't know that God was the one who conceived Jesus. They are suspecting something else. They also say they know his siblings. They still live in the town, and they list a couple of them there. From this verse, we gather that Jesus had at least six half-siblings. He had at least four half-brothers. We have their names, and it says sisters, so he had at least two half-sisters as well. They give us some of their names. James. Uh, James will later go on to serve in the church. He'll write a book in the New Testament called James, Joseph or Joseph. Judas, you may know him more as Jude, who wrote a book also later in the New Testament, and Simon. But at this point, these brothers and sisters, his family, they rejected him too. We already saw that here in Mark. If you remember a couple weeks ago in Mark 3, we read that when his family heard it, when the family heard what Jesus was doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And so when Jesus goes to his hometown, that same attitude seems to be here. They say, we see what you're doing, you're doing a lot of great works, but we know your background. And so they end up offended at Jesus. They took offense at him. When Pastor Jason Meyer put it this way, the people in Nazareth are so aware of Jesus' humanity that they cannot fathom his deity. They're so aware, yeah, we know Jesus, we know this guy, there's no way that he can be God. That can't be true. And so they're deeply offended. They're scandalized to the point that they refuse to listen to him anymore. They don't approve of his teaching. They can't deny what he's doing. They call it great works and miracles, but instead they reject him for who he is. It's kind of like if we were to paraphrase that verse 3 into our language there today, they're saying, who does Jesus think he is? Who does this guy think he is? We know all about this guy. He can't be saying these things to us. And this is not the only time Jesus had an interaction like this. In John 6, we read this. It says, some Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus? They're a little nicer this time. They say, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They don't believe, they don't understand what he's doing, and it makes them angry. They take offense at it. And again, this is a reaction that many have to Jesus today. If you push beyond that, what do you think of Jesus? Oh, he was a great teacher. But if you push a little further, what do you think about the fact that he said he was the Son of God, that he's the one to believe in, that he's the only way, truth, and life? Many find that offensive. Find it offensive that Jesus would claim to be the only source of truth and life. But the truth is that this book is the record of Jesus's words and works. It's meant to draw us closer to him. And I hope that as you read these words, that God's spirit works in your heart, that you turn from being offended at who Jesus is and turn toward faith and trust in him. 
Because as Jesus said in Matthew 11, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now in this moment, when Jesus sees their response, he relates his role to what happened to the Old Testament prophets. He said in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Jesus sees his role similar to those prophets in the Old Testament because many of them were rejected by the Hebrew people. If we look in the Old Testament, we could look at 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36 says they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets. The people rejected those God sent to speak to them until God's wrath rose and there was no remedy. It was too late. In the same way, Jesus has already been rejected by his family. Now he's being rejected by his hometown. As we go further into Mark, we'll see he's rejected by Jerusalem, the capital city, and then eventually he's rejected by the Jewish people as a whole. And the result here of this rejection, verse 5 tells us, is that he could do, he could not do many mighty works there. He could not do many miracles in Nazareth, although it does note he healed a few people, but he couldn't do as much as he did elsewhere. Why did this happen? Because his miracles were supposed to demonstrate God's power. They weren't magic tricks to draw a crowd. They were intended to bring people to salvation, to trust in him. As Pastor J.C. Ryle says, unbelief has the power to rob men of the highest blessings. And this town was robbed of seeing what Jesus could do for them. If people are hardened beyond belief, Jesus knows there's no point of him doing miracles. It's not that he didn't have the ability to heal these people. It's not that he needs us to believe in him before he can act. No, he wouldn't act because of their unbelief. He refuses to do his miracles and his work. He refuses to do that and force it on people who persist in rejecting him. It would be a contradiction of his character, who he is, if he forced people to experience his good work. And so here is the phrase that I referred to at the very beginning about Jesus being amazed or marveling in verse 6 of our passage. It says, he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled because of their lack of faith. He marveled that they did not trust what God was doing. As the scripture says elsewhere, faith, trust is key to relating to God. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The unbelief in this city of Nazareth prevented Jesus from healing there. In the same way, our hard hearts, when we say, I'm not believing, I'm not trusting in what God's doing, that prevents us from being saved, from knowing the salvation available in Christ. The only way that can be fixed is if hearts are changed. People of Nazareth needed their hearts changed. We need our hearts changed if we are to be saved. To be saved, to know Jesus, to believe and trust in him, we need the Holy Spirit. We need to be born again to a new life. He has to work in us. And that hasn't happened yet to the people of this town. Jesus has been rejected by them. And so he goes on to other villages to preach. That's kind of the what of what's happening here. But let me take a moment to talk about the why. Step back. Why did this happen? Why did these people reject Jesus? 
There's at least two reasons we could think about here. On the one hand, Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, and the Old Testament talked about that he would be rejected in that role. There were several Old Testament prophecies that spoke about this, about how he fulfilled prophecy. That's your next blank, fulfilled prophecy. For example, uh, Psalm 118, verse 22, says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In other words, Jesus was rejected by people so that his new faith, new salvation could be built. Or the one that we read earlier together, Isaiah 53, 3, says of this Savior, this Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not, we did not care for him at all. The Old Testament scripture predicted that there would be a savior. There would be one who would also suffer so that God's people could be accepted by him. That is what Christ did. He's experiencing a little bit of it now. He'll experience it ultimately when he dies on the cross. He's fulfilling prophecy by being rejected by his people. So that, that's one reason that's kind of going around the background, but immediately for the people who are there, these people of Nazareth, why are they rejecting him? I think we could word it this way. He was rejected because his neighbors had an attitude of familiarity with him. Or we could say they were overly familiar with him, or at least how they understood Jesus. An attitude of familiarity. This is still true for us. That we may turn away from things we, that are different, that we don't like. Oh, I don't know about that, so we stay away from that. But it's also true that something can be so familiar to us, we become so used to it, that we can either ignore it or start to resent it. Again, J.C. Ryle said it is an awful truth that in religion, more than anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. We can become so used to something that we start to despise it. We become so used to hearing Bible stories. We can be so used to hearing songs. We can be so used to being in a church or religious environment that we can start to kind of let it come in one ear and out the other. We can start to ignore what we're hearing. If we're not careful, we can start to despise the truth that we hear. Perhaps you're here today and Maybe you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a Christian, but you come to church. Maybe it's your parents, maybe uh, bring you, maybe it's a friend asks you to come. And you're here, but if you're honest, you get kind of tired of religious things. You've heard these songs before, I've, I've heard these stories, and you wonder what the point of it all is. Oh, friend, the truth is that Jesus is amazing. And I know you may feel overly familiar with him, but you're actually only familiar with an idea of who he is. You do not know who he is himself. I encourage you to seek him in his word in prayer. Come to know Jesus Christ, and he can change your desires. But friends, this familiarity with the truth can also happen to those who profess or claim to be believers as well. We can become so familiar with God's word that Jesus doesn't captivate us anymore. He's more of an afterthought, and his word no longer changes us. It's something we look at at Sunday, or maybe we open it every day, but we read it for our own pleasure, not so much for it to change our lives. 
Now, don't hear me wrong when I'm using this word familiar. I'm not saying, oh, so I need to spend less time in the Bible. No, no, I'm not saying that at all. We should read God's word, study it, know it, talk to him. I'm saying be careful of this attitude of familiarity. Be careful of the attitude of, well, I know all about Jesus. I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for years. I know about you. I know all about the Bible. There's not anything else I need to learn about it. Maybe I don't know all the answers to all the questions, but I, I know the basic things. I don't need to learn more about the Bible and God's Word. Or maybe when we hear something from the Bible, we're so familiar with it that we push it aside. Maybe we hear a truth from Scripture, we say, okay, well, I know the Bible says that, but you don't know what I'm going through in my life right now. You don't know about this situation or that situation. Let me ask you, is Jesus too familiar to you? Pastor Kent Hughes puts it this way, Christ, our life is an ongoing miracle, and we must never let our growing familiarity rob us of the dazzling wonder and demands of our faith. We must not let our, how close we, we think we understand what God is to keep us from knowing Jesus himself as a person we have a relationship with, as a relationship that changes us. Maybe you're wondering, why is Pastor John preaching through the Gospel of Mark? Why did we pick that? There's so many other cooler parts of the Bible we could be looking at. Why are we here? And I think that what we're talking about today is one of the main reasons why felt led to go through this book. Because personally, I think the greatest challenge that faces the church, God's people today, is a lack of love for Christ among God's people. It's a lack of Christ-likeness. We don't look like Christ. A lack of Christ-mindedness. We don't think like Christ. We say we do. We say we love Him. But instead, we're controlled by our own interests, our own preferences, our own desires. We live for ourselves, and we don't think about what He has said and who He is. Again, we say we love Jesus, but we don't act like it, and we ignore His Word. And we ignore what His Word says about our character and our lives, how it impacts issues of life today. And yes, all sin, all things that are wrong against God can be damaging, but this, this over-familiarity this lack of love that results, it can be particularly heinous. Because if we live in this area of a lack of love for Christ, a lack of thinking like Him, a lack of living for Him, then that can destroy our faith, and it can destroy our witness to others, and then it can poison the faith of the next generation. I was reading something this week from a scholar named Michael Horton, and he put it this way, the worst vulgarity, the most offensive thing in the world is not what we hear on the streets. It's not what we see when we stream movies online. It is the vulgarity of the church trivializing or misrepresenting God. He says what's probably most offensive to God is when his people downplay what he has said or misrepresent what he has said. And friends, I worry that Jesus, to use the words of verse 6, that he may marvel at our unbelief and lack of faith. He may be astounded by our lack of trust in him. And I worry that our lack of faith limits Christ's work through us for his glory. Now, when I say this, I'm not talking about a particular person. I'm not trying to single anybody out who's here. I'm saying all of us together who claim to know Christ, this is something 
we need to think about together. We all must watch our hearts and be careful that we do not become hardened to God's word. We need to ask ourselves, you know, is there a part of God's word that, that offends me? Is there a part of God's word that I tend to ignore? Maybe it's what the Bible says about a particular sin. Say, okay, well, I know the Bible says that that's wrong, but God doesn't understand what's going on in my life right now. He doesn't understand this circumstance and situation. So I know the Bible says that, but I, I, I think I know better about this. Maybe the part of the Bible that offends you is what it says about loving our enemies and turning the other cheek. You say, oh, Pastor John, that doesn't work in the world today. I'm sorry, but those are the words of Jesus, and we downplay and ignore them to our peril. Maybe you're offended by the suggestion that the worst sinner, the absolute worst person you can think of, the person you hate so much that that person can also be saved and know God's grace. That no person, while they're alive from our perspective, is beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy. Maybe that idea is offensive to you. The reason why we're studying through this book, the reason why we are studying through the gospel according to Mark is because Jesus should constantly challenge us. What we read should constantly be working in our minds to challenge us to want to grow more like him, to make changes in our lives, to look more like Jesus, to think more like him, to act more like him. I like how Danny Aiken puts it. He says, in a sense, we should never get comfortable with Jesus. We should never get comfortable with Jesus. His goal is not to make us comfortable. His goal is to bring us to repentance and faith. His goal is to bring us to turn from sin and believe and trust in him, humbly falling at his feet, confessing him as Lord and God. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to say Jesus is our friend, Jesus is someone we can talk to. It doesn't mean that that's wrong, no. But it's driving us that Jesus constantly works change in our lives. If we know him or, or we're coming to know him, he's working our lives to mold us into something, to shape us. If we have an attitude of, I'm done, I'm a finished work, I'm, I'm, I'm mature right now, it's those other people who need to grow in faith. We're just exposing how much work he still has to do in us. He wants to continue working in us. But on the other hand, if we trust him, if we have faith in him, if we think like him, if we have his priorities, if we model how he lived, if we love him, then he can work through us to do great things. He can work through his church to change the world. He's done it before. He's still doing it. In other parts of the world, he can do it again. This is the goal we should pursue. So how do we get there? Well, if we discover in ourselves a lack of love for Christ, if we look at his word, we want to push it to the side. If we don't feel like we're growing in our faith, then we should talk to someone about that. We should talk to another believer in Christ and say, can you help me with this? Ask some questions. Seek help for how we can grow. I'm really struggling with, with this particular issue. I know the Bible says it's wrong, but I don't quite see how it's wrong. Talk to somebody about that. Don't keep that to yourself, mulling it over. Share with someone else. If it's a genuine brother or sister of Christ, they'll want to have that conversation with you. 
And by extension, then, if somebody asks you that, don't react with, how could you think that that's the right thing to do? No, encourage that person. Say, thank you for sharing that with me. Let, let's work through together to see how God can work in that. Ask someone, how do you love Jesus and stay in love with him? How do you look at his word and think about what he's thinking about? Ask for help. And if someone loves Christ and loves you, they would be happy to do that. They'd be happy to show you how you can see more of who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the one we need and the one we need to know. Stanley Aiken says, we cannot come to Jesus on our own terms. We must see him for who he truly is. He's not who somebody says he is. He is who he says he is. So as we study through the gospel of Mark, I hope that Jesus constantly surprises you. I hope that he more and more draws your heart toward him. Jesus is not just somebody who died a long time ago. He's somebody that you can know now. Think of it like uh, learning more about a spouse or about a friend. You can spend years with a person and still discover something new about them. You can be years with somebody and say, wow, I didn't know that about you. I didn't know you liked that. I didn't know you did that. You can have that same relationship with Jesus, discovering more about him. So maybe you've been here. Maybe you've been in a church for a while, but the question I have for you is, do you know Jesus? Not, did you say a prayer when you were a kid? Not that you check Christian on census things. No, do you know Jesus? Have you truly come to know him? The way you come to know him is by repenting, turning from sin, and believing and trusting in him. Now, I know that uh, some of you are anxiously staring at your outlines, thinking, Pastor John is only halfway through this sermon, and the time, time's, time's there. And I am well aware of that fact. That's why I slowed down. I think it's important that we talk about this point. We can talk about the rest next week. It's important that we acknowledge in our hearts and looking at God's word, think about, am I overly familiar with Christ? I, and again, understand what I mean by that. I don't mean that, oh, I'm spending too much time in the Bible. I mean, do I think I understand Jesus so much that he doesn't change my heart, that he doesn't challenge me? Is my relationship with Jesus such that every day I discover more and more of, yeah, that's something in my life that needs to change? Or... Is your life more looking at others saying, yeah, that person's wrong, that person's wrong. Oh man, those people need Jesus. Yes, everybody needs Jesus, but he has a particular work to do in us. And I pray that we will seek him so we do not be like, or we don't end up like those people in Nazareth, those who should have known better, who instead said, yeah, we, we know all about Jesus. We don't need what you're sharing with us right now. I worry that that can happen to us. That can happen to somebody who's says they've been a Christian for years, and it can be you if you, if you claim that or you never say that you've believed or trusted in Christ. Either way, the solution is the words we spoke about in, in the one song, Victory and Jesus talked about that. It's repenting, turning from sin. It's putting that sin, that rejection of Jesus behind and saying, that was wrong, now I'm going to have faith and trust in you. If we make that appeal to God, he saves us, he draws us, to himself. He provides eternity, yes, and then he starts that work changing us each and every day. And if he's doing that, then that's something we want to share with others. That's the good news 
we want to share. It's a powerful work that he can do through his spirit in us. So I pray you'll think about that this week. Am I overly familiar with Jesus? Does he still change me? And if not, that you'll seek help and seek him to grow closer to him because he's worthy of being drawn close. He's worthy of knowing him more. He's worthy of all the praise and the honor that we can give.